All right, this morning we're going to be taking a slight detour. I know we've been in Exodus. I know we've been working on the tabernacle. We're not going to forget that. We are definitely going to continue to work on that. But due to current events, we are going to do something that I think is very important. Obviously, we know what is happening currently between Israel and Hamas. The war continues to rage on as the death toll continues to rise within Gaza. Here's just a few bulletin points from this morning. Fears for civilians are growing as Israel says it's it's gearing up for the next stage of its war with Hamas, including widespread strikes and significant ground operations. Israel launched the retaliatory offense after Hamas' October 7 terror attack that killed 1,300 people. Conditions in Gaza have deteriorated into a complete catastrophe. Aid workers say as tens of thousands of Palestinians attempt to flee. The IDF has said it will commence significant military operations only once we see that civilians have left the area. So that's, they're now holding back a little bit. We will see. Uh, The Pentagon has ordered a second carrier strike group to the eastern Mediterranean and is sending Air Force fighter jets to the region. The warships are not intended to take part in Israel's operations, but to deter others from entering the conflict, such as Haran and Hezbollah. So those are some of just the basic, those are updated just about um, about five minutes ago. Um, So the, the situation continues to get worse and worse and worse. Escalation seems to be the direction things are going, not de-escalation. We will see who will get involved or not get involved. But as all of that is happening, obviously, because it deals with Israel, that has a profound, a profound impact on many Christians and many churches based off their theology. All right. So because all of this is happening, what I have witnessed within Christianity is two real two approaches or really three approaches. One approach has been to use this as an opportunity while the bodies are still laying on the ground to be to use it as an opportunity for them to go on social media or to post things saying, hey, this Israel is not biblical Israel. Biblical Israel no longer exists. They broke the covenant. There's no promise to Israel. They don't get the land. They don't get anything. And to really just use it as an opportunity to say, we don't care what's going on over there because it has no biblical significance. All right. I don't know if that's the time or place to really try to emphasize that you don't believe that Israel gets anything, but some are using it as an opportunity. It just came across kind of crass for some to do that. Like, hey, Israel doesn't have any promise to the land. And you're like, okay, that's, that's wonderful that you think that, but people are currently dying. Okay. The second, the second approach, so that's kind of the first approach. That's more of the, and I'm not saying everyone who's millennial or people are not, I'm not saying everyone in that category is doing that, but one, some in that category really want to put, emphasize, nope, there's no promise to Israel. That promise comes to the church. There's no covenant left with them. You know, that type of thing. All right, got you. The second approach, of course, you're always going to have now people running to misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories, exaggerations, hyperbole, and we don't want anything to do with that, right? And the reason we don't want anything to do with that is as Christians, we are supposed to put away lies and speak the truth, and we should be the source of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, not the source of conspiracy, misinformation, and disinformation. So we definitely want to stand against that, right? So the first group, we're not bothered that they don't believe that. That's okay. They can have that theological position. I just think there's a time and place to put forth that, right? I mean, 
They've had years to put forth that idea. Why do so on the day that people, a thousand people have died? It just seemed odd. So you can have your own opinion on that. The third group are people who believe strongly that Israel, the nation of Israel, God has not forgotten them. God has made a covenant with them. And that covenant involves what? Land. And that that land will belong to Israel. And that God will restore and regenerate and save Israel. Right? Now, for those they see this then as possibly very significant because Israel is involved. And for them, they will go to many biblical passages and start saying, wait, could this be a fulfillment of this? And this could be a fulfillment of that. And this could be a fulfillment of that. Sometimes that slides over into a little bit of sensationalism. Sometimes I think people jump the gun and start claiming that a Bible prophecy is being fulfilled. And then six months later, it was obviously not fulfilled, and everyone just moves on to the next time something happens. Uh, and so we, we want to avoid that, but we want to at least be willing to deal with the, the, the situation from a biblical perspective. So what I have noticed is in everything that I've been listening to within the Christian world, I've been trying to monitor the Christian world and how they're handling this. One passage of scripture has been brought up countless times over and over again, and everyone should know what passage that is. And that passage is, okay, obviously nobody knows. So, okay, you, you, yeah, okay, Stacy will know, okay. Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, all right? Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, as I was listening to someone, I think last night, because I, I did over about an hour and 15 minute review, um, they put forth the hypotheses that within the evangelical world, we have two major problems with Ezekiel 38 and 39. Problem number one is that many people sitting in the pew don't, are ignorant of Ezekiel 38 and 39. So my original goal was to walk in here this morning and say, close your Bible and give you a basic test on Ezekiel 38 and 39 and see how well you would pass. Now, I don't want to have to do that, but I, because I think I already know what the answer would be, how well do you think you would do on a test on Ezekiel 38 and 39? Okay, all right. So I think that gives me, I th- so that at least proves his hypotheses to a certain level that he believes many Christians are ignorant of Ezekiel 38 and 39. On one hand, that, conf- that confounds me and confuses me because as long as you've been a Christian, if someone throws a rock in Israel, everyone quotes Ezekiel 38 and 39. So I don't know how everyone can be ignorant of it, yet it's constantly referred to. That seems like a weird, I can't, I don't understand that. Like, is it because people just hear? I don't know. I don't understand it. But he says that's a problem. The second problem he put forth is that when it comes to Ezekiel 38 and 39, people are ignorant of it. But what they do know about it is they don't actually know about the text. They know just what everyone says about it because everyone understands Ezekiel 38 and 39 based off a presupposition that they place upon the text. So if I say Ezekiel 38 and 39, what is Ezekiel 38 and 39 about? Even if you don't know anything about the chapter, you've had to have heard a million sermons on Ezekiel 38 and 39 where they claim it's about... Russia's invasion of Israel? Okay, nobody knows that? Nobody knows that? Okay, all right. 
Or, well, you hear it over and over and over and over again, over and over and over again. It's about Russia's invasion into Israel. When, when Russia and a number of armies are going to come together against Israel. But Russia is always the main one mentioned in Ezekiel 38 when you listen to people talk about it. So obviously, y'all don't know that. Y'all don't know. So y'all not even reading your presupposition into it. Okay, well, then I guess that's great. So, but that still proves the first uh, issue. So my concern is this. If my job, if you're ignorant of something, what do I always say in regards to biblical ignorance? Well, it is your fault. Yeah, that, that is true. I will stand by that because you own a Bible. So, uh, But I will always say this. Biblical ignorance is the soil in which deception and manipulation is planted. Ignorance of a text makes you vulnerable for someone to tell you what it means. And I will argue when it comes to Ezekiel 38 and 39, the people walking around as if they're experts on Ezekiel 38 and 39 are really actually experts on what? What everyone says about Ezekiel 38 and 39. So my job this morning is to try to do a couple of things. Since we're living in a moment in time where Ezekiel 38 and 39 is getting a lot of attention again, and if it's not, if this goes away in 24 hours, which it doesn't look like that's going to happen, um, if this continues to escalate, I think Ezekiel 38 and 39 will become more prominent in some Christian circles or in Christian social media. And even if it goes away within 72 hours, there's a great chance three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, it'll be discussed again. Well, you, you're supposed to be the ones when you see that dealing with it, engaging with it, and trying to help people understand. So I want you, what we're going to try to do is make you knowledgeable of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take a different approach. Because in most churches, that we say, open your Bibles to Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then the pastor would act like he's teaching you Ezekiel 38 and 39. But really, he's not teaching you anything about Ezekiel 38 and 39. He went and read a bunch of commentaries and books that told him what Ezekiel 38 and 39 means. And then he brings that presupposition, lays it on top of his Bible, reads all of that into the text, and then you go, now I understand Ezekiel 38 and 39. No, now you understand what your pastor was reading about Ezekiel 38 and 39, but you are convinced that it was such a great sermon because he used inflection, made good eye contact, and gave you three points and got you out in 45 minutes. Well, I'm tired of, you know how I hate that entire system. I want to burn that entire system to the ground because that doesn't do any good. So what I believe is necessary, and after listening to what I did last night, I'm even more convinced it's necessary, we need to do an observational exercise on Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 38, and Ezekiel 39. And when I say an observational exercise, you can just go ahead and act like kids in high school and go, oh, man. Okay, because nobody likes observational exercises, all right? What is an observational exercise? Y'all should be experts in observational exercises. We're going to just go through the text and we're going to try to observe what is there versus interpret what is there. And why do we do observational exercises? I should know this hermeneutical principle. 
observation must always come before interpretation. The quality of one's observation determines the quality of one's interpretation. And not only that, you know what happens when you do great observational work on the Bible? That when you listen to some sermon and someone just comes along and says, this means this and this means this and this means this and this means this, if you've done the right amount of work on observation, guess what you will know? You'll be like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where did you get that from? That the text doesn't say that. You're imposing it on the text. So we're going to do a lot of work and we're going to see what we can discover. Everyone ready? So grab a Bible dictionary. Let's start there. Let's grab a Bible dictionary and let's see how well this works today. All right. I hope this goes well. I hope this proves to be beneficial. I'm going to grab this book. You grab a Bible dictionary. I'm going to be making you do a lot of work because if I just do an observational exercise and I'm doing most of the work, then, well, you'll tune out and be thinking about what's for lunch and we can't have that. All right. Okay. Everybody good? All right. Everybody uh, open up the Bible dictionary, find the entry for the book of Ezekiel. All right. Here's what we need to figure out. If we're going to do an observational exercise on Ezekiel 38 and 39, right? If we're going to do an observational exercise on, on Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39, we need to at least do a miniature, 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 miniature cliff note version of a book background con- study. And the reason we need to know that is we need to know the who, what, where, when, and how of the book so that will give us a great, that gives us what? Some approach in what to do with Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39. Agreed? All right, so... Give me a start. Look, everyone read the very first paragraph in your dictionaries of Ezekiel, uh, of the entry for Ezekiel. It's on page what? The The book of, yes. 431. Just look at the first paragraph. 430. Okay, 430. I'm not looking at it. Just read the first paragraph. Tell me when you've read the first paragraph. All right, I'm not going to look at it because I'm going to look at something else. Tell me when you read the first paragraph. Got it? All right. Break down, summarize what the first paragraph tells you about the book of Ezekiel. What's the first thing it tells you? Number one? It's prophetic. Okay, very good, very good. It's prophetic. So that kind of place is a literary genre, right? It's prophetic, okay? All right? Now, what? whenever you see the word prophetic, come on, Bible students, what is the first thing you need to, what's the first questions you need to start asking yourself? If it's prophecy, remember this, was it prophetic for them, but it's now historical for us? In other words, it was prophetic for them, it was future for them, but it's all been fulfilled. So when we read it, we're looking back to look at to when that fulfillment occurred. Or was it prophetic for them and still yet prophetic for us, right? That's always big questions, right? Because sometimes as soon as people see something that's a little bit prophetic, they immediately do what? Jump to a future. So that's always, is that always easy to determine? It's not, it's not easy, right? It's very difficult sometimes to determine. Has it been fulfilled? What, what, what happens, all right? What's well, the second thing you see? So the first thing, it's prophecy. That tells you genre, and it gives you so a, a very important hermeneutical question which you must answer. Next thing it tells you. 
Okay, it's in the Old Testament. Okay, next. Oh, stop right there. Vivid, symbolic language. Vivid, symbolic language. All right. What does that tell you if you're reading a book and it says it has vivid, symbolic language? Well, we have, well you, have to, you have to be very careful. Okay, that's a good thing. What, what's, a, what's some hermeneutical principles that, that's required? If it's using symbolic language, we have to figure out what does the symbol point to? Does the symbol point to a literal fulfillment or does the sp- a symbol point to some kind of spiritual fulfillment? Because you can use symbolic language that still points to something literal, right? Or some could argue it's symbolic pointing to something spiritual, Right, that that's important. But and what we got to figure out exactly what the symbol is pointing to. Anything else you read in about the book? Okay, Ezekiel's the author. Okay, anything else? What? Well, he received these prophetic messages and visions. Okay. Oh, very good. This. These words are addressed to people, to the Jews, primarily Judah, right? Can we agree primarily? Who are in Babylon or in Babylonian captivity. All right. Now, the, why is that important? Okay. Oh, and he lived, does the say of that? Right. Okay, yeah, he lived, because he went in one of the deportations. Remember, there were three? There were three. Okay, he went in one of them. All right. Now, this is very important. If we know that this symbolic, prophetic book was given to people in Babylonian captivity, then what's a very important hermeneutical question which we must ask? How do these things apply to them? Because we have a tendency, if everyone's running to Ezekiel 38 and 39, during a time of the Israel-Hamas war of 2023, means that they don't, they're not applying that to the original recipients. They believe that that had nothing to do with the original recipients. It has something to do with possibly the time in which we are living. That's a big, that's always a, look, whenever you are, whenever you're reading any of the Old Testament prophecies, that's always a struggle you should have. Like, you should struggle with that fact. Because you're like, why would you go give these messages to people in captivity if you're giving them a message that has nothing to do with them? That would be a good preterist argument, right? Right? Because you're like, they're going to look for historical fulfillment. It's like, it's got to relate to them to some degree. But it's weird. People sitting in the pew don't seem to care. I don't care if it had nothing to do with them. It has something to do with me. I don't know, it's narcissism. I don't know if it's selfishness. I don't know if it's arrogance. I don't know if it's just more the American mindset. But we got no problem doing that with the Bible. We got no problem. We just read it and like, ah, forget you. We don't, get, we don't care about you. You're dead. It's about me. <laughs> I don't get, we, 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 we got to stop that, okay? We got to figure out what, anything else. That's the whole first paragraph, all right? There's a second paragraph. You can just skim. How many paragraphs is this in the book of Ezekiel? There's a lot, right? Okay, the structure of the book, okay. Does it tell us uh, what the purpose of the book is or the goal of the book, what the author's intent, what he wanted to accomplish? 
Can we at least find that? That kind of we kind of got the who, we kind of got the what. Okay, there's the structure. All right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip from that. I'm going to go to this, all right? Ezekiel's the 6th century Israelite prophet, exiled to Babylon, has given his name to the book as, as, as its composer. His name means God strengthens in Hebrew. So they say Ezekiel means God strengthens in Hebrew. Everyone got the Blue Letter Bible app? Look up the, uh, Ezekiel and look at the name in Hebrew and see if that holds true. The word Ezekiel. The word Ezekiel. And his name mentioned at the very beginning of the book? Or am I wrong? Okay, it should be there, right? So then you can just look that up in the blue Bible app and they may give the meaning of his name. Yeah, right there in verse 3. The word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel, the priest of the son of Buzai. Okay, is that what it means? God will strengthen. All right? Now, what? what? Is there could be some significance there? What could be the significance? Did you say something, Robert? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, okay. Oh, it does say that? Okay, yeah. When you look up Ezekiel the man in the Bible dictionary, it probably will say, it will also confirm that his name means his strength, God strengthens or something along those lines. All right. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Yeah, he's the prophet going to the people who are currently suffering in Babylonian captivity. What do they need? Strength. Okay. All right. So you can see how the name could be significant. All right. I think that's important. All right. Um, they give a key text. They give the key term. We won't look at any of that. Here's their one sentence summary. You ready? From exile in Babylon... Ezekiel's stunning visions and startling symbolic acts were prophecies for the Israelites to teach God's sovereign plan over them in the history of his kingdom, say they will know that I am the Lord. They seem to focus on that, hey, this was given, these prophecies were given to whom? To Israel, who was in captivity to show them his sovereignty. So we have to first try to always apply it to whom? Original recipients, original recipients, right? They say, here's the purpose. This is what they have. This book preserves the divinely inspired prophecies that Ezekiel made during his ministry of more than 20 years. These prophecies were originally for Israelites who had been exiled to Babylon shortly before the final fall of Judah. Ezekiel warned that God's destruction of Jerusalem was looming, but that God responded to individuals based on their relationship to him. Ezekiel also, now this is very important, ready for these words? Ezekiel also foresaw the distant times when God would act divisively, decisively, so that Israel and all the nations would know that the Lord alone is God. So they're saying he spoke but if he looks to the future, now listen, listen, this is very important. Thinking caps on. If Ezekiel is going to provide pro- prophecies that may be future even for us, 
even our, well, their future for us, the prophecy may not be for us, but it's for us in the sense that it's, it's in the future from when we are living. If there's any future prophecy that Ezekiel given, was, had, gives in the text, its primary purpose of that prophecy would be for whom and for what purpose? It would be for Israel. Which Israel? Nation or what some would tell us is spiritual Israel in the church. The nation, because who's in captivity? Not the church. It's not for the church who's in Babylonian captivity who needs encouragement. This is for the nation. So whatever future prophecy, it's probably probably a good guess to say it's for whom? The nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. We, we got to stress the words, the nation of Israel. Right? Do you understand? Whenever you talk to a Christian and they mention Israel, what should be your next question? What Israel, what Israel are you referencing? All right? Make sure you understand this. If you're dealing with maybe an amillennialist or someone who doesn't hold to a covenant for the nation of Israel, many of them will say, it's not that the church replaced Israel. They will say the original covenant was never with the nation. It was always with God's people. So it's always been with spiritual Israel. It was never for the nation of Israel. Now, we went and spent, you know, six months looking up every use of the term. We, would, we feel that that's almost impossible to prove. That's imposing a theological system upon it. We reject that outright. I'm willing to listen to it, and I'm willing to change my mind, but I have a hard time that the people in Israel at that time going, oh, guys, it's not about our nation. No, 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 no. It's about those who believe, it's about the church. Give me a break. I mean, we, we know even the Pharisees and Sadducees. Under, even when, go to, go, go to Acts, the book of Acts. I think it's chapter, maybe it's chapter one, maybe it's chapter two. Chapter one or chapter two. But you can, whoever can find the reference first, you win $100 or something, okay. But uh, it, it'll be the disciples, Jesus is about to ascend back to the Father and the disciples say something to him before he ascends, like, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Something along those lines. I think it's Acts chapter 1. Acts 1, 6. All right, everyone look at Acts 1, 6. I want everyone to read this. All right, I'm going to, I'm going to turn here. I'm going to turn here. Just give me a second. In this case, I want to read it as well. Acts chapter 1, verse 6, we read these words, all right? Here we go. All right, I, I, and I'm just, I'm going to start in verse 1 so that we have, well, we'll just read verse 6. All right, here we go. When they therefore were come together, now who are the they? Okay, the disciples, right? All right. When they therefore come together, they asked of him, who's the him? Jesus saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Are they asking, are you going to restore now something to spiritual Israel? Are you going to restore now something to the church? No! They're thinking, okay, after everything that's happened, 
Okay, we may have gone through a little bit of period of doubt because you died on us, right? But now that you're resurrected, now that you're back, this has now got to be the time that the kingdom comes to whom? To us. And then the enemies can be wiped out. That means that even at this time, they still understood and still believed that promises were to the nation. And does Jesus say, guys, those promises were never to Israel. Does he, does he correct them? Does he tell them that's never going to happen? In fact, what does Jesus say to them? It's not for you to know the time. He doesn't say it's, not for, it's never going to happen. That's a very important principle. So if we're reading a book of an Ezekiel where he is making future promises, future even for us, right? It's, it hasn't happened yet. Those promises would first and foremost have to be applicable to whom? To the very nation in which he's giving the prophecies to. That's, I cannot stress that enough. We've got to get that much down, okay? So does that kind of give us the who, what, where, when, and how of Ezekiel? Do you feel like you've got a pretty good a, a, a grasp on it? Right, just so that you know, Ezekiel prophesied during the first part of the Jews' uh, Babylon, uh, Babylon, Babylonian captivity. They have five ninety three to five seventy one BC. All right, Ezekiel's prophet, Ezekiel prophesied during the first part of the Jews' Babylonian captivity, five ninety three to five seventy one BC. Now, they could get into some more dates, and we could get into a lot more specifics here, and I could take about, I could take a long time here to look at it, but we won't break it down anymore. That gives us a, the basic concepts. Everybody feel good about that? Feel good? All right, now, let's go to Ezekiel 37, and let's begin. What is going to be what many would feel is a very boring and horrible experience to sit through in church? Here we go. We start in 37. Now, I've got to be very, I'm going to try to be very careful not to offer any interpretations. But I want everyone to put, I, I, I cannot stress this enough, all right? Everyone paying attention, I need, don't look at the text. I need everyone to look at me. This is so important. All right. If Ezekiel 38 and 39 are the chapters everyone run to, and they believe it describes some massive military grouping of armies and nations coming against Israel that everyone keeps thinking anytime something happens, they're like, okay, wait, so we've got Hamas. Okay, Iran could support Hamas. Russia could support, okay, well, if Iran and Russia come together, okay, oh, now we have nation. Okay, this is the beginning of Ezekiel 38 and 39. When everyone starts doing that, what I always drives me crazy is everyone forgets Ezekiel 37. So I'm going to put forth, as we do an observational study, is we need to know clearly everything that happens in Ezekiel 37. We need to be experts in everything that happens in 37. Because if, hear that word if? If, and I stress if, if 37 comes before 38 chronologically, then you don't even look for 38 and 39 until everything in 37 has occurred. 
that could stop a lot of speculation instantaneously. Does that make sense? All right. Now, we do know. Was Jeremiah in chronological order? No. Is Ezekiel in chronological order? Go back to your Bible dictionary, and I think it had an entry about the structure of the book. Okay. Okay, do they, do they, did they say anything about chronological order? Does it say anything about its structure being in or in, not in chronological order? Just take a look and just see. That's the, that's the best source that we have right here. Does it say anything about it? Because almost everyone talks about the last part of the book. All right. Okay. I'm just going to read this for you. You may want write this in your notes. Everybody ready? Everybody ready? The book. The book follows a topical order rather than a chronological sequence. The book follows a topical order rather than a chronological sequence. There are three main sections. Prophecies against Israel, chapters 1 through 24. Prophecies against the nations, 25 to 32. Future blessings for God's people, 33 through 48. I cannot stress the significance of that paragraph. All right. Let me read that again. The book follows a what? Topical order rather than a chronological sequence. As soon as you read those words, what should you do? You should be like, oh, for crying out loud. Not this again. Because chronological order is very important, right? Because if you have chronological order, you can say, well, wait a minute. This can't happen until this happens. That's easy. That, do you know how many things you can uh, avoid and how many problems you can avoid hermeneutically to see that and understand that? Right? What, when, when that happens, I mean, when that's not there, it's, it's a free-for-all. It's, it's, it's a hermeneutical anarchy. I need chronological order, ladies and gentlemen. I need it. If I have chronological, like, for example, if I have chronological order in the book of Revelation, and people start going, oh, wait, wait, the mark of the beast is here. The mark of the beast is here. Oh, it's an Obamacare. Because if you get a medical device, it's going to be tracked by a number. We're, we're being marked. We've got to be a microchip. We've taken the number of the beast. And everyone starts losing their minds. If it's got chronological order, I can go to Revelation and go, well, this has to happen, and this has to happen, and this has to happen before the mark is revealed. And none of that has even come close. Could you stop talking? And sometimes you've got to be rude to Christians who just keep saying nonsense. Well, the same thing can be very, very beneficial here, right? 
Because if everyone's going to run to Ezekiel 38 and 39 and going, ladies and gentlemen, it is it. We're almost there. We're there. You can go, whoa, we're a long ways from that because this has to happen and this has to happen. But if it's in topical order, not in chronological order, you see where we could have a problem. However, they do group them into three sections. The three main sections are, number one, prophecies against Israel, chapters 1 through 24. Number two, prophecies against the nations, 25 to 32. And then future blessings, 33 to, 34, 33 to 48. Now, the good thing is, at least 37... 38 and 39 all fall within the same section. Now, what would be the obvious question that we need to know? Is that section in chronological order? Does that book that I'm just reading from tell me? Of course not. Does the Bible dictionary give you any statements or words or thoughts on the possible chronological or lack of chronological order in the book of Ezekiel? Probably not. All right, we're just going to assume that it doesn't. If anyone uh, is looking at a Bible dictionary at home, you can email me and let me know because I would love to know um, what you can find. But I think it's serious. These are serious questions, right? And this is what drives me about church. People come to church. You know how many churches people are going to hear sermons on Ezekiel 38 and 39 probably over the next month? It's going to happen all over America. Because what's happening? We got a situation going on with Israel. Everyone's going to run to Ezekiel 30 and 39. Y'all looking at me like I'm crazy. I, 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 can, I, can, I can show you 500 sermons probably that's already been preached on Ezekiel 38 and 39 in the last five days. All right? Because that's what everyone runs to. The problem is no one stops to do what we're doing. Right? So what everyone does, they run to Ezekiel 38 and 39 and they, they, they grab their little trusty commentary that breaks it down and go, okay, ladies and gentlemen, hey, right now, it may not be happening right now, but this is setting the stage for Ezekiel 38 and 39, and this is what's going to happen. And they'll start naming the nations, right? And they'll start, they'll, they'll, they'll talk about the map and, and they'll name geographical locations so they sound very, very smart. And they will even pronounce them correctly, right? They will sound even smarter, and then you'll go, oh, wow, my pastor showed me how we're getting ready to see Russia team up with Iran and they're going to come after and they're going to march through this area. And it's going to and you're going to be like, I, I understand you don't understand a thing because you've just been had, you've been manipulated, you've been taught, you've been lied to because no one's going to take the time to show you all of the hermeneutical issues pertaining to the book. And I know that when I do it this way, it takes the fun out of it. I just want a sermon. I'm sick of sermons that do nothing but manipulate people. So, does everyone understand? Now, when we get to Ezekiel 37, we need to know everything that happens. Even if we're not sure that there is a chronological connection, even if we're not sure, I know this. We need to at least know everything in Ezekiel 37 just so in case there's a chronological connection, then we can eliminate, when, we, well, at least we can eliminate when Ezekiel 38 is not happening. Does that make sense? And everyone here should be already probably about a 50% expert on 37, because if there's ever a chapter preached in Ezekiel, it's chapter 37. 
probably the most preached upon chapter in the entire book. All right, so you guys are already experts. You want to do a test? Okay, y'all say you're an expert, then you say no. Okay, well, come on. All right. Okay, all right, here we go. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. All right, that was, that was uh, 44 minutes of just getting us here, all right? But that's all, you, that, lays the frame, that lays the foundation pretty good, don't you agree? Okay, I'm going to pretend that it did. All right, here we go. Verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me. Stop, observational skills. Who's the me? Ezekiel, okay. What would you base that off of? Okay, well, all the prophecies are given to Ezekiel, right? Can we agree? All right, all right. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones. Now, we know, we think, we, I think we can come to some agreement that this is a vision. Can we agree that it's a vision? Right? I think it's a vision. So in other words, God's going to show him something in, in a vision. And he's in a valley of what? Bones. Uh, so what kind of bones does it say? Okay, just bones. Okay, so he's there. You can picture it in your mind. There's a valley and it's just full of bones. And it seems to be that they're just laying on the ground, right? That seems because he can see them, correct? Okay, so there's bones scattered everywhere. And, and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. So he gets, in a sense, carried around just to see them all. And he, he describes them as what? Well, two different ways. They say very many, very many, and very dry, all right? So you can just write down these basic observations, just basic observations, all right? Now, immediately, what we have a tendency to do is start trying to throw on some kind of interpretation. We're not trying to interpret. We're doing observation, right? So it's a valley, there's lots of bones. Can we say many bones and they're very dry? Is that, is that fair? And he said unto me, son of man, can these bones live? So then he asked him a question. Can these bones live? And Ezekiel is really, really, really smart. So he answers in what way? You know. You know. Right? Is, that, is that not what he says, right? Very smart. If you ever have a smart teacher and they ask you a question, you always say, you know, right? So if you have a good student, if you're a teacher and you give them a test, the teacher, the student should just send the paper back to you saying, you're the teacher. Why are you asking me? Okay. Do you think that will work? <laughs> see now, yeah, yeah, see now. Now, now Sarah's like, give me the test now. Now I know how to answer it. All right, here we go. All right, here we go. Here we go. In verse four, all right? Again, he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, can we agree that from just a very human, practical standpoint, this sounds and looks ridiculous? He has, stand, he, he has taken all around just to show you how, that there's lots of them. They're very dry, meaning they're very dead. Okay, they're very dead, right? And he, then he's like, can they live? 
Ezekiel's like, hey, you know, and then he says, do what? Prophesy. Why does he want him to, him to prophesy to the bones? It says, to hear the word. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Bones can't hear. Agreed? All right, so the whole thing looks very ridiculous. All right, so what happens? Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. Please note, verse 5 is very important, just from an observational standpoint. The action, who is doing the action? God is doing the action. Does he tell, does he tell these bones there's anything they have to do? No. What is, what, what is being stated here? To these bones, God is going to do what? I will cause breath to enter into you and ye shall live. doesn't say the bones have to do anything. The bones are bones. Can bones do anything? No. But God is going to cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin, put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Meaning they're dry bones. They're not going to do anything. God, all the action is what? God-centric. Is that, is, would that be an accurate way of describing it? All the action is God upon the bones. The bones are just recipients of the action. They're passive. The active force is God. The passive recipient are the bones. And what are all the things God is going to do to the bones? If you want to list them out, what are all the things God is going to do for the bones? What's the first thing? Give them breath. Second thing? Going to give them flesh. Okay, next. Okay, stress the breath and they are going to live. He's going to give them life. They're going to go from dry bones to basically using this terminology because they're bones. We're assuming human bones, right? They're going to become, they're dead bones to an actual flesh, living, breathing something, right? Agreed? Okay. What, which verse was that? That was five. Verse six. No, no we, did, we read six. Okay, we read six. All right? And they're out. Oh, please note, one other thing is going to happen to them. You failed to mention it. They're going to know that he's God. They're not just going to live. They're going to know that he is God. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together bone to bone. Right? Pretty crazy situation, agreed? And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. So he begins to prophesy. They begin to come together. Flesh, there's still no breath, right? Then said unto me, prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man. Say to the wind, thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came upon them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. So now they're all standing up. And it appears like it's an army because there's so many. 
Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the... Okay, I want everyone to circle that, write that down in all caps, put 75 exclamation points just to irritate people who say there should only be one, all right? Draw stars around it, use markers, I don't care, permanent marker, crayons, I don't care what you have to do, please write that down. You say, well, that's a little dramatic. No, it's not. It's not even a, I'm not even being a little bit dramatic. I'm, being, I'm understating the significance of that. These bones are the whole house of Israel. Whenever you see the phrase, the whole house of Israel, let's do this. Y'all look it up. See if you can figure out how many times the phrase, the whole house of Israel is used in the Bible. Whole house of Israel. Let's see how many times it is used. We're doing observation, so let's, let's take a look and see. Whole house of Israel. How many times? Do you, you already know? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, got you, got you, got you, got you. Whole house of Israel. Can we find how, how many times it's used? We have eight. Do what? Eight or twelve? Okay. I don't know the total number. Okay. Well, let's do this. What? Uh, what time is it? How, do we have time? Do we have time? Because this is something we can, oh yeah, we have time. We have time, we have time, all right? Where's the first one located? Leviticus 10.6. Everybody look at Leviticus 10.6. What we want to do is we want to understand this phrase, the whole house of Israel, right? We want to understand it. Leviticus 10.6. Whole house of Israel. Right? Read, read the verse and tell me what do you think the whole house of Israel is referencing. All right, so what does the whole house of Israel seem to be referencing in Leviticus 10.6? The, the people of Israel. Do you think that's the nation or you think it's the church? I think it would be the nation because, yeah, I, I think it'd be ridiculous to try to put the church there. But I am going to do something. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Go, uh, what's the next one? That's Leviticus 10.6. Everyone write that down. What's the next one? 2 Samuel 6.19. Okay, y'all go look that up real quick. Hang on. Okay, it's not the word house. All right, we'll look at that one in a second. Hang on, hang on. Let me do something here. Hang on. Ezekiel, hang on. We're going to run out of time here, but this is very important. I cannot stress this, right? Um, Okay, it's Ezekiel 3711. All right, hang on. I'm, hang on, I'm looking at something. I could be wrong. I'm, 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 I'm just guessing here. I'm just guessing. 
I'm just guessing. I'm just guessing. But let me look here. I've got to go to parallel commentaries. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Oh, please, hang on. Ah, does not help me. All right. That's okay. That's okay. Okay. Yeah. I knew he was going to go. I, didn't, I thought he was going to do something. Uh, that's the concise one. I need the whole one. Oh, I know what to do. 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 Hang on. I can look at it this way. Give me one second. I don't want the concise. I don't want, oh, there's the complete. There we go. All right, this is much better. All right. Because at some point, we're going to have to look at this, and I'm trying to save our time. Come on. Stop bringing up ads. Okay. When you're trying to look something up, and they've got to pop up 17 ads on the screen. Okay. All right. Um. Here we go, here we go. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll have this when we need it. All right, because at some point we'll look to Matthew Henry and we'll just start showing you where he starts throwing the church in everywhere. Okay, all right. So the, so the first reference was Leviticus 10.6, and we definitely know that seems to be referring to obviously the nation of Israel. The second you said is the whole multitude of Israel, and that is what... 2 Samuel 6.19, and if you look at that text, what does it seem to be referring to? The what? The people. The people of Israel. The nation. I mean, there's no other way to understand it in these contexts, right? Okay. Third reference? Jeremiah 13.11. Jeremiah 13.11. Jeremiah 13.11. Go ahead and look there. Jeremiah 13.11. Yeah, now this one is where it gets really specific, right? Jeremiah 13, 11, right? Jeremiah 13, 11. For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so have caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that I might be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory, but they would not hear. Clearly, when you're talking about the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, that is clearly referencing the nation. There's no way to get around that. Okay, next. The next one is Ezekiel 37.11, which we just read, right? Okay, the next one, 39.25 in the, in the same book. Oh, please, now, now we're in chapter 39. Uh, very important, right? Okay. Uh, okay, here we go. Ezekiel 39.25, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, now I will bring again the captive uh, captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel, and will be jealous for my holy name. Look at 39.25. What would be a textual clue there of who he's referring to? The captivity of Jacob clarifies who the whole house of Israel is. And what is he saying the captivity of Jacob would be? The captivity of Jacob would be a reference to what? Israel being in captivity, not the church. 
Not spiritual Israel, the nation. Right? Next reference. Ezekiel 45, 6. Now we get into the bizarre section of Ezekiel. Okay, that nobody understands. Ezekiel 45, 6. And ye shall appoint the possession of the city 5,000 broad, 5 and 20,000 long, over against the oblation of the house portion, and it shall be for the whole house of Israel. All right? Once again, any more? That's it. All right. So there's nothing there that would make us reinterpret the whole house of Israel, right? Nothing. And immediately now we know the Valley of Bones, this is about whom? The bones are? I mean, just look at the text. Read the direct the text. Ezekiel 37. These bones are the whole house of Israel. End of story. No, if anyone comes and does anything else with this, please don't ever forget Ezekiel 37.11. And if Ezekiel 37.11 is about the whole house of Israel, that starts giving you some very, very, very important hermeneutical and contextual clues and how we may proceed through 38 and 39, right? And even in 39, the same phrase is utilized, all right? So far, so good? All right, we're going to have to stop there. All right, there we go. There's our observation. Uh, Now, I can't give you any three-point summary through our observations. It's just that we haven't done this. We have clearly clearly shown that the Valley of Dry Bones is about the whole house of Israel that were bones who come to life. How do we understand that? That's where the interpretation is, but we can at least observationally say that's what it's about. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. Lord, as we continue to work through the, uh, an observational study of these next couple of chapters, Lord, help us remain dedicated to this, committed to this, and help us be able to handle these chapters correctly. And as people are suffering and dying, let us not be, as Christians, misapplying and twisting Scripture in regards to a horrible situation. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. And God's people said...